Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, one year after the pandemic began, much of the focus has been on vaccines, but what progress has been made on treating people who are already infected? We've got some great news about that. All three Ontario opposition leaders are demanding Premier Doug Ford apologize for accusing an Indigenous NDP legislature of vaccine queue jumping. Will Ford admit defeat? (laughs) And as the vaccine rollout continues to ramp up in Canada and the United States, some American politicians are calling on the Biden administration to reopen the Canada-U.S. border. Is that likely to happen? We'll talk about it. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's always the story about the vaccines and the rollout and and how this is going to be disseminated over the next little while. Uh, And and that's certainly going to be the focus, I think, and and, then justifiably so, too. But at the same time, we also want to talk, and we touched on this a little bit of the program yesterday, about some of the progress that's been made of treating people who have already been infected. Uh, Not everybody uh, who uh, contracts the disease, of course, has to go to the hospital. Uh, But those who do, uh, let's face it, a year ago, it it was a rather onerous task to try to keep these people alive, and sadly, didn't happen an awful lot of the time but uh, the medical experts have learned an awful lot about what to do and and how to do it and techniques etc and there are many more people that are actually getting COVID now that are surviving uh, there's a great piece in the uh, the global webpage uh, called what we've learned about treating COVID one year into the pandemic uh, it's uh, from Rachel Gilmore of course from Global News so she is a journalist with Global News and she joins us uh, to talk about this uh, Rachel thank you so much for the time first of all great to have you back on the show today Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. This is one of the stories that it, I'm glad you, you put this out there because we need to have a discussion about this at the same time. I know we get fixated on, on vaccines, and that's understandable. But let's talk a little bit about the technology that's happened and the way that we treat people that actually do get COVID. Uh, it's much different now than it was 12 months ago, isn't it? Oh, it totally is. So I, I spoke to a couple doctors, and they kind of explained to me that you know, when COVID first arrived, people had no idea what to do. And when patients came in, it would be a sort of mishmash of treatments that you'd kind of, you'd try out this and you try out that and just try to figure out what works. But um, now they've learned not only what they need to do, but what they don't need to do. So they can just get straight to the point. And the main development has been these steroids. They have these steroids. The, the main one's called dexamethasone. And it's an anti-inflammatory steroid that can be given orally or intravenously, which is huge because it's flexible. So if it's given orally, it can be administered, say, in a long-term care home. Um, And it's actually proving to um, make a noticeable difference in the outcomes of of COVID-19. So instead of, you know, trying out a million different things, they just go straight to things like this new steroid um, so or this uh, steroid that is a new treatment for COVID. <laughs> um, and they figured that out about last summer and the proof is in the pudding. The, uh, you know, the adverse outcomes went down in relation to how many cases there were. Significantly, right? Oh, yeah. Um, so let me, I can just kind of pull up my numbers here. Uh, so, you know, in, in the second wave at the peak, um, and this was, I was looking at a chart that looked at the numbers that were reported. So, you know, uh, obviously provinces we've heard have kind of like thrown big chunks of uh, numbers at us in the past. So um, it was a pretty big peak. But um, basically there was a 500% increase in the, the highest amount of COVID-19 cases in the peak of the second wave compared to the first. So there was like five times as many cases in the second wave compared to the first at the height of it. Um, but the death rates were only 20% higher. 
than they were in the spring at that same time. So if you think about that, that's that's huge. There were so many more cases and the the increase in the number of people who had a negative, you know, a, a severe case or even sadly died from this virus was nowhere near. Uh, it didn't in any way match that increase. So that's huge. And it's, I think it's a nice little bit of a uh, little ray of sunshine, uh, you know, in, uh, in something that's been a really tough year for everyone, just seeing this progress. It, it just gives you a little bit of hope. As you were doing the research for this, I know you talked to, uh, well, a couple of the guests we've had on the program many times, Dr. Isaac Bogosh and uh, Dr. Zane Shagla. Uh, Dr. He was just on the show yesterday. Uh, what was it like, Rachel, I mean, as, as they're trying to go through this? I mean, this is kind of like trying to, you know, find something in a dark room with no light at all in this. I mean, they didn't know really where to begin with this. Was it was a trial and error to, to decide what was actually going to be the most effective way to, to treat people? Yeah, there was there was definitely a little bit of trial and error. I mean, obviously, they're very smart people, as you well know, oh, yeah. <laughs> from chatting to them. So I'm sure that they had a much better idea of what to try and err with um, than, you know, if you or I were stepping into those rooms. But, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, they, they, they learned a lot. And I think that one thing that was such a big deal at the beginning of the pandemic was there was it wasn't just, um, you know, dealing with this new virus that they didn't know how to treat. It was also living through a pandemic themselves, right? So, you know, you're in a hospital, but you don't know how this thing spreads. You don't know if the the equipment that you're wearing is adequately protecting you because we just don't know enough about this virus yet. So, you know, at the beginning, it was trial and error in terms of figuring out how best to treat the patient. But that was also being done with an eye to the safety of the people who are administering that treatment. So, for example, you know, um, they were more likely to put someone on a ventilator um, and ventilators, once you go on them, they, they can kind of increase the chance of a, of a negative outcome. Um, but people who, uh, you know, could theoretically have put on a CPAP machine instead to help their breathing um, because of the levels of oxygen in their blood, um, you know, doctors kind of shied away from that at first because it, that, those can really increase the aerosols in the air. And they didn't know if they were going to be basically risking contaminating, contaminating all of the doctors and nurses working in that environment if they moved towards using those machines as opposed to ventilators. So, you know, there were lots of decisions that had to be made that were kind of weighing how best to treat the patients and provide the best standard of care while also making sure that we actually have the staff available to treat them because if they all get sick, then no one can be helped. Um, so as, you know, um, they, they kind of tried and errored and figured out that these steroids are super helpful, that maybe you don't need to put someone on a ventilator so soon, masks work, you know, adequate PPE works, and started getting enough PPE. And now with vaccinations, it's a huge sigh of relief because now they can just focus on treating the patients with, to the best of their knowledge which ev- with everything that they've learned. And, you know, they've, they've got, um, all of those <laughs> past mistakes or, or past, um, you know, studies that show that something doesn't work to show them what does work. So you can feel a lot more confident today going into a hospital or, or getting treatment. And, you know, they've always done their best, but just by nature of having all of that time under their belts, they just know how to do it better. Well, I think it's all attitudinal, isn't it? As, as they were going through this process, and, and just reading your piece last night, it, it's it's like what Thomas Edison said when he was trying to invent the light bulb. He says, "I have not failed thirty-one times. I have discovered thirty-one ways that don't work." Uh, and and, and they, that's what these guys had to do, pretty much too, because they figure, okay, this is what it tells us, and this is not like I mean, for most of us, I guess, Rachel, our idea of how they come across this stuff is like by watching old episodes of House, and you know, he always comes up <laughs> with the right idea, and it's not like that. It's trial and error, and uh, and and it's got to 
be awfully frustrating. But uh, And there were, as you mentioned in the piece, there are other attempts at other medications and, and newer medications that were developed that they thought were going to be the quote-unquote wonder drug, and uh, they didn't work out so well, did they? Yeah, no. They, so there were two new treatments that have been approved in Canada, and unfortunately, they, they don't really hold a candle to the steroids. But luckily, we have the steroids, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's nothing to be super disheartened by. But, you know, um, so the, the first one, um, you'll have to forgive me because they're a bit hard to pronounce. Oh, I know. That's why. I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, wish me luck. Um, so uh, the first one is called um, remdesivir. It's an antiviral drug, um, and basically it was it had the goal of treating patients with severe symptoms of COVID-19. But, you know, despite some early um, studies that showed a lot of promise with respect to this drug, um, it, it, it kind of just later studies showed that it just wasn't that effective. And the WHO was even saying, you know, you don't really need to bother with this drug because it doesn't really seem to work. Um, and then the other one, and this is a really hard one to pronounce. I'm going to say it slowly. It's bamlanivimab. Um, it's the coronavirus antibody treatment, and basically it works by being directed against the spike protein of the virus, which is a lot of jargon, but basically, in layman's terms, what it does is it's supposed to lessen the severity of your outcome as you COVID-19 progresses. So you want to take this drug early in your diagnosis or early in your symptoms, and it kind of make it slows it down and it doesn't let it really pick up steam because obviously, um, you know, some people get COVID and they just, it, it's like a tiny little blip, whereas other people, it, it can kill them. So yeah. you, you want it, you want that first outcome, obviously. So um, this drug is aimed at kind of slowing it down. Um, but you know, they, the difficulty with that is that I believe it has to be um, it has to be administered, administered intravenously, um, and so to catch it early enough to get the kind of resources to administer an IV instead of just like taking a pill, it's just proving that it's not very practical to use. So you know, both drugs are used; they're both helpful sometimes, but they aren't kind of the, the creme de la creme and they, they unfortunately didn't really make the big difference that I think everyone was hoping they would make when they were in development. But, you know, we have steroids and we have a lot of knowledge under our belts and we have vaccines. So um, it's nothing to be disheartened by. And as you, as you mentioned, it's uh, so much of learning about this virus is learning what not to do. And now they can provide the adequate, you know, uh, the best standard of treatment so much faster because they know what works. I, I'm not going to say I knew this all along, but I mean, uh, because I didn't. Uh, but I, I, you know, and, and you're right; it was trial and error. But I guess as, as, as Dr. Shagla told us one time. Uh, you know, first of all, they had to identify what they were dealing with because well, there were so many symptoms. Remember a year ago, you know what's what's going to happen? There's some well, it's, yeah, it's breathing, but there's other things that can go on too. And uh, and once they identified that, you know, the main culprit here is is the attack on the respiratory system. Uh, steroids kind of made sense. I don't know who you know had the the idea to give that a shot, but because we're already doing that, as, as we all know now, people that have breathing problems, asthmatic problems, or stuff like that, uh, the ventil and puffers, that's steroidal really, uh, and it's it's basically to relax the lungs and give the lungs a chance to, to recuperate so uh you know kudos i hope you know whoever thought that i've got the rest of the day off and said you know you, you got it going <laughs> uh you included something else in the piece which i thought was really interesting too and that's the attitude of the frontline workers i mean let's face it there was a lot of fear a lot of trepidation uh, in the early days because they didn't know what they were dealing with didn't know how it was going to impact them uh you know they they were away from their families they didn't know about isolation you know am i going to catch this just because i'm on the floor all the time uh 
you were writing to, in the piece that, that there's been a, a very positive change in attitude now that they know what they're dealing with, they know they have effective treatments, and they understand now that the PPE that they're wearing is probably the best thing they could do. And, and there's almost like a rejuvenation. I mean, I know they're tired, you know, physically and emotionally tired, but at the same time, uh, they feel as if, you know, they've really moved the yardsticks here. Absolutely. You know, um, there was one quote that really stood out to me that Dr. Chagla mentioned, and it was, he said, um, you know, we as healthcare providers have the duty to care, but we never want to be the ones that are the consequences of that duty to care. So, you know, they, as much as they want to help people, they want to save people, but they also have their own kids and their own families at home. And, you know, when it's a deadly virus, it's, it's pretty terrifying to be faced with the prospect of bringing that virus home to your family. Um, so I think there was so much uncertainty and so much fear. But as we've learned so much about this virus, and, you know, I think most Canadians can kind of attest to this in, in a small way is, you know, we can feel a little bit more confident. Like when you go to the grocery store, you know that if you wear a three-layer mask, you keep your distance from people, you wash your hands when you get home, then you can go to that grocery store and probably be totally safe. Whereas at the beginning, you know, a Costco run was <laughs> pretty terrifying. Well, look, <laughs> at, yeah, I, I can remember it. those, I can remember going to the grocery store and those, and nobody would get, if there's somebody down the aisle, nobody would go down to figure out, whoa, I'll wait till they're finished. You know, I, I, yeah. I've, I've got to get my toilet paper but i'll wait until they're done uh you would just that you were that nervous about it and it would and we you know justifiably so i mean let's face it we didn't know what we were dealing with and it's not that i, I don't think as, as dr shagley told you they're not taking lightly it's just they understand that what they're doing now is effective and that's that's good news exactly and you know add to that the power of vaccines uh you know that that's kind of uh the, the doctors did acknowledge, they said, while there's been these developments in the world of treatments, what's happening in the vaccine world is it's nothing short of miraculous. Like, mm-hmm. it is un, this incredible speed, the likes of which we rarely, rarely, well, I, I'd say probably never see in the vaccine world. But every, you know, all of these great minds came together and they made it happen. And, and you know, the, the advancements in treatments and figuring out how to treat the uh the COVID-19 have been impressive, but they, they, they don't really even hold a candle to the vaccine because that's just, they, the vaccine world has blown it out of the water. And that's been a huge help for the healthcare workers, especially, yeah. you know, they're, they're on the front lines of, you know, they're in the early stages of the vaccination process. And now, you know, they can go to work and they don't have to worry. They don't have to think about what they're bringing home or what risk they're taking on. And, you know, even with all of the PPE and all of the knowledge that they had about it, you know, there's there's some stuff that you just can't, you, you can't bring the risk to zero. But with the vaccines, you can get it pretty close. And that's a huge sigh of relief for them. You know, they, um, you know, Dr. Chagla said to me uh, that, you know, it, it's been a huge sigh of relief, as I've said about 10 times now. This is going to be a part of normal, but it's not going to affect my day-to-day home life. It's something I can leave to at work and care for the patients there. So, you know, uh, you a, can actually come home at the end of the day and kind of forget about it. It's, that's great. Yeah, Leave your work at work if you possibly can. Listen, it's a great piece. Uh, I encourage people to go to the global webpage and check it out because uh, there's a lot more on this, too, that uh, we didn't have time to cover. As always, Rachel, pleasure to have you on the program today. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You too. Thanks, Bill.
Take care. Rachel Gilmore, journalist, of course, with Global News. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. I want to talk about politics at Queen's Park. There have been calls over the last couple of hours, a couple of days, I guess, since the announcement was made yesterday from Premier Doug Ford, for Ontario's Premier to actually apologize to an NDP legislature. As Global's Brianna Carnegie reports, all three opposition leaders are condemning the words of the Premier. Premier Doug Ford accused an NDP legislator of cutting the line to get a COVID-19 shot in a northern Indigenous community. Sol Mamakwa says he was invited to by community elders to help combat vaccine hesitancy. Those comments that were made, I thought uh, it was just a lack of understanding, but actually it's uh, a lack of respect. Leader of the NDP, Andrea Horvath, responds. The Premier needs to undo the damage that he did this morning. The Liberal Stephen Del Duca calls Ford's actions deplorable and Green Party leader Mike Schreiner became emotional. To accuse one of the most respected members of the legislature of queue jumping when he was just doing his job and showing leadership I think is completely inappropriate. And I think the Premier needs to apologize and I'm really sorry I didn't think I would get emotional. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So there's been a lot of pushback on this. Uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott, who's also the Deputy Premier, by the way, uh, came to uh, Doug Ford's uh, defense and suggested he was really just expressing a degree of frustration. Everyone needs to wait their turn. I'm not sure whether he was in the um, lineup for a vaccine or not. I'm just saying that everyone in Ontario needs to continue to follow the um, priority populations that we've already outlined. Which doesn't really address the problem at all. Uh, there's that. There's a couple of other things we want to talk about, uh, announcements that were made uh, by the, the Ford government as well. And to, uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, our good friend Richard Brennan, former Queen's Park and Parliament Hill journalist with the Toronto Star. Uh, Badger, quite a day, quite a week at Queen's Park. Let's uh, let's tackle the uh, the issue of uh, the Ford comment, uh, first of all, about what happened yesterday. Your it's, thoughts uh, on that? I, I just think, you know, the bar can't get any lower. <laughs> uh, and it, it does. I mean... It was just it's despicable what what he said. I mean, he doesn't understand. First of all, you don't shoot your mouth off if you don't know what you're talking about. And he doesn't understand the, the Native community, and he doesn't understand their distrust of vaccines and the government, or either or. And what he was doing, what, what uh, Solomon Mackwa was doing, when he went was visiting a Native community, an Indigenous community, and he was asked by the elder if he would take the shot as well to show everybody else that it's okay to do it. And he did, and as a result, they got 99% take-up on those vaccine shots in, in that community. And he, and, and so the reader, or listeners, I should say, know he was entitled to that shot any place because he's an he's an indigenous person. Yep, exactly. And to suggest that he jumped any kind of cue is just well, it's it's just nonsensical, quite frankly. And I I I don't think the premier will apologize. He's just not. It's just not. He's just not built that way. And he should. He just should have said, "Look, at you know, I you know." Uh, what I said was wrong, and I apologize. That's all it takes. But he, he doesn't seem, it doesn't seem possible for him to admit that he's wrong. And here's a case where he should, and people will say, okay, he made a mistake. Let's, you know, move on. He got his vaccine, didn't he, the premier? I don't know. I don't think so. 
Oh, okay. Because I, I know the prime minister has, and, and other political leaders have. I, That's I, what... I, well, if they did, it was certainly kept quiet. I don't think he has. I'm almost positive he hasn't. Okay. And, and it, you know, it's usually it's, a photo op. Yeah, it would be a photo. At this point, I don't care who gets it. I just want everybody to get it. And you know, and I think that's how everybody feels. It just let's let's get on with it. And but to suggest that you know, and, and you know, as uh, Mr. Schreiner said, a well-respected member of the legislature, to you know, to say that he had done something wrong when in fact he had done nothing wrong. In, in fact, Badger, actually he did something right, because then one of the concerns that all the medical experts have talked to us about is vaccine, vaccine hesitancy. In other words, people that just, Absolutely. I'm not so sure about this, and, and, and you've seen some of the stuff on social media uh, that, you know, you know, some people are saying, well, if, if black people take this, it's going to infect their DNA, it's going to give them brain to I know one lady that said, well, I may not have any kids if I get the vaccine. Oh, There's a lot of crap going on out there. So what he did at the request of the elder was basically to re assure the, the indigenous group to say no it's okay it's fine look i'm doing this you should do it too uh barack obama did that in the states i mean there's a long list of people that have taken that 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 attitude and simply say i'll show you it's okay i'll show you it's safe uh and and it's worked as you say the more people we get vaccinated the better i thought he was actually ford actually should have thanked him for the work that he did instead of taking a shot at him oh, oh absolutely and, you know, I, I here I'm going to sound like an old guy and say, you know, like, we we had vaccines, you know, back for polio when I was a kid. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and nobody, no, we didn't hear from any vaxxers back then. People saw what polio did. They lined up and they got their shot. Well, goodness, we've seen people, thousands of people die. And I, I just don't get where these people are coming from. I really don't. And 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 to go back to... You know, Mamakwa, he has every right to be upset with what the premier said to him. He did, like you said, he did everything right. And he has, well, you know the guy, and, and you know, you know his reputation. I've had him on the program in the past. Uh, you know, he's he's a hardworking guy. He stands up for indigenous rights, and he's been a voice for that community. So to have somebody like him get the shot and say, look, do this, this is what I'm doing, uh, is, is a huge benefit. You saw the uptake, of course, as you mentioned, the number of people that said, okay, I guess we'll do it after all. Uh, because, you know, as we've said, if, if there's going to be huge blocks of the population that don't get inoculated, we're never going to get herd immunity, and this thing's going to be with us for God knows how long. So uh, I, I agree with you, though. I don't think he's going to apologize. He didn't apologize to uh, Leader Horvath a couple of weeks ago, and he made some untoward comments about her uh, in the legislature. Uh, and, and Christine Elliott's excuse, which is all it was, was, well, he's frustrated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's you know, How many years have you been covering politics, Badger? Frustration is not a, an excuse for being an idiot. Well, or acting like an idiot. Well, you know, the, the point is just, you know, you don't, you know, you've got to have a thick skin be in politics and i think that's where where mr ford suffers is that he's not he was not raised in politics and he's not used to the you know the, the political uh realm and he gets he takes it personally when an opposition member might uh, you know accuse him or something or question something the government's done he just he, he lashes back in this case he just lashed back for for no good reason and if he'd only if you knew the history, uh, our, the indigenous people in, in Canada, you know, have a healthy distrust of government. You know, they've gone through, you know, the, uh, you know, they've gone through the 60s scoop, the residential schools, and there was even a time when they were experimenting with, with uh, 
with natives in with various uh, vaccines yeah. years ago. So they don't trust government. And what and what Mr. Mamakwa did was say, "I'm going to take the shot. I want everyone to take the shot. It's okay to take this shot." And that, you know, what he did was a, a real a real service to that uh, indigenous community, not what Mr. Uh, Ford was, was describing. Uh, so we'll see what the, the fallout is on that over the next couple of days. A couple of government appointment announcements that I wanted to get your read on, too. Uh, one is the uh, former cabinet minister of the Harris government and a former leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservatives, Tim Hudak, uh, who's now going to be heading a new provincial tourism task force promoting Ontario destinations. This is all because of, uh, obviously, the pandemic and how do we get the tourism industry back on its feet. Uh, i got to tell you, i, I I've known Tim Hudak for many, many years. I think this is a good a good appointment. I think he's the right guy for that job. I couldn't agree with you more, Bill. I know Tim, obviously, and uh, and he was, a, you know, a former tourism minister. Yeah, and he, he's a bright guy, and he's, you know, he he you know he was, uh, you know, he was uh, quit as leader and 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 didn't uh, and didn't you know mope around after that. He got a job with the real estate association. And he's, you know, he's he's got on with his life, and they've asked him to do this. And I think it's a, I think uh, Ford was smart to put him in there because he know, you know, as a tourism minister and as a former cabinet minister, and a longtime MPP, he knows the province, and yep. he knows, and in particular, he knows Niagara region where he lives, and and what how important tourism is to that area, and quite frankly. All of Ontario. Well, exactly, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, the first time I met Tim, he was the tourism minister. We were talking about the casino industry in Niagara Falls, and he was a guest on that program. That's back when I was doing the TV show on Channel 11. Uh, and, and he's always been approachable, always been a good guy, always returned phone calls, and uh, you know, for good, bad, and ugly. I mean, you know, there's some pretty ugly days for politicians, but Tim would always step up and say, "Yeah, okay, let's talk about it on the air." So good for him. And the other thing too that we should remind people about. Uh, it's a volunteer position. He's not getting paid for this. He's just doing this because he was asked to. Uh, because I know people always worry about patronage appointments, which leads us into the next one. Uh, former Toronto Chief of Police Mark Saunders has now been appointed a special advisor for redevelopment of Ontario Place. Uh, you may ask, well, what's his expertise in that? I'm not sure. Uh, you may ask what's he's being paid? An awful lot of money. Your thoughts on that? Well, this is one that really has me scratching my head. Uh, Mark Saunders, a nice man, uh, you know, he did his best as chief. But what does he know about, you know, redeveloping Ontario Place? You know, I, I'm I'm a bit taken aback. <laughs> I just don't understand what he brings to the table. You know, again, he's a smart guy. I'm not saying that. But what expertise does he have to rede- redevelop uh, this area, which is... A, of utmost importance to uh, Ontario, and that's to do it right and make it make it a place where everybody can enjoy. I just don't see it. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm trying to pour over the CD. I'm going Wikipedia and everything else and saying maybe there's something. Maybe he's got an engineering degree that we, I don't know, but uh, I don't see anything here. And, and I agree with it. I think he did a pretty decent job. I mean, let's face it, when Bill Blair left the, that job as chief of police, there, there was a, a lot of, of conflict going on there, you know, just because of the G20 and lots of other things, too. And I thought Saunders was a calming influence. And uh, and I, Toronto still got its problems, of course, with with law and order. And, and it's, it's ongoing. I get that. But 
and I'm not even surprised that in some place they'd find something for for him to do. But this just seems to be the wrong fit. I don't understand the the whole idea of being an advisor. Uh, if you were an advisor, Badger, about uh, about you know broadcast journalism or, or you know, print journalism, I could say that. Yeah, look at all the experience he's got. Boy, he could really bring some some intelligent you know discussion to the table. I don't know what Mark Sanders brings to the table. No, here. I I don't, and I don't know what they're thinking. But this is the kind of stuff that happens uh, with all parties, not just the conservatives. Oh, sure. Well, will they where they appoint somebody that for god knows reason like you know that uh, what 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 credentials do they have to take this job i i i've seen it time and time again over my uh, time at queens park in ottawa where people were appointed to jobs and i and i go what what do you bring uh, just because you're a liberal supporter ndp supporter what what is it and it it's hard it's hard to put your finger on and it's you know, God, there's maybe somebody out there can straighten me up and I uh, straighten me out. But I'll tell you, I, I would love to hear from him. But what I see right now and what I know right now certainly doesn't qualify him to do that job. I got to throw one more at you because I got a minute or two yeah. left here, uh, and that's a story that we talked about, and it's about conservation authorities and about the announcement the government made a couple of weeks ago, but actually expanding the green belt. And we thought, oh, maybe he's developed a, a an environmental conscience. Well, uh, as of uh, yesterday, I uh, reported in the uh, Toronto Star, uh, a developer is now poised to get permission today, Friday, to start destroying a protected wetland in Pickering in preparation for building a giant retail warehouse. Uh, and this, they, oh, the government, the cabinet is actually overriding the Toronto Region Conservation authority that didn't want this to happen uh, and they planned that this is uh, as I say just around Pickering uh, out near that particular neck of the woods just off the 401 uh, probably it's Amazon but it's going to be the largest warehouse by double I guess of anything in Canada right on a wetland uh, yeah. so much for environmentalism I know about this because I've just uh, written a piece that I hope will appear in the spec uh, it's Duffin Creek wetlands it's called and it, what they've done is they brought in a, a, a minister's zoning order. And for the listeners out there, a minister's zoning order trumps everything. Yep. All local development rules gone out the window. And, and not only have they done that, they did, they, you know, they brought in at the request, mind you, of the local, uh, the, the regions, uh, to do this for this, what is purported to be an Amazon warehouse. They also, there's a lot of proposed legislation right now before the, before the legislature to not only have the, uh, the MZO, they also have made it retroactive to include that big footing of any environmental concerns. So, you, you know, you would think, okay, you do an MZO, well, you still, you know, even you've got that, you still, you know, you can't trample environmental uh, needs. But they've got this uh, proposal right in front of the legislature now that would allow them to do that retroactively. And, and it, uh, you know, critics believe it's been sparked by this Duffin Creek development. It's, it's well, you know, it's listen to what I say, not what I do. That seems to be the attitude here, and it's, it's awfully frustrating because uh, I, I know that, you know, this whole idea about expanding the green belt, and uh, we know what, what he's been talking about doing, about actually, you know, allowing these sorts of developments. Uh, and, boy, when he goes, he goes big, doesn't he? Well, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, like, why would you want to, uh, 
want to pave over a wetland, uh, again, that just doesn't make sense. Well, we'll see. I'll look for your piece in the in the spec, hopefully, in the next couple of days. Badger, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too, Bill. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Richard Brennan, of course, former Queen's Park uh, reporter for the Toronto Star for many, many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big day in U.S. politics yesterday, too. In his first primetime address to the American public, uh, President Joe Biden pushed back on the divisiveness around public health measures as he made a bold promise to have enough vaccine for every adult in the United States by May. While touting the country's ability to mark its independence from uh, the virus, he says by the 4th of July, you should probably be able to have backyard barbecues. That's a pretty bold promise to make. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the details. Comforting a country ripped apart by this virus at a rate far worse than any other, President Joe Biden brought glimmers of hope to a desperate audience. We are bound together by the loss and the pain of the days that have gone by. We're also bound together by the hope and the possibilities of the days in front of us. Hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine have been procured, and the goal is to have all Americans in line by May 1st. Biden implored people to wear masks and for states to tread carefully when lifting restrictions while urging Americans to not allow hatred and vitriol to define the response. It's wrong, it's un-American, and it must Stop. Biden's speech was not intended to be a victory lap, but instead a call for help from all Americans in order to move forward. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So how is the president performing? What's his approval rating? And uh, you know, is he is he getting the American people behind him in these initiatives? Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Rob Goodman, a professor with the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Professor, a uh, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on. Let me ask you first of all about performance. I will get to the the nuts and bolts and the context of, and, and content of what he was saying, but I'm always interested, especially in these days, about how uh, politicians perform in front of the camera. How would you rate uh, the way the, the the president has performed uh, since he's taken the office? Well, I think he's been doing quite well. I think his approval ratings show that. I think he he's in many ways a less polarizing figure than his immediate predecessor, obviously. Um, you know, but I think the one thing that's interested me about uh, Biden's presentation is, is that in many ways he's He's an understated president. Uh, he doesn't dominate the news the way that Donald Trump or even Barack Obama did. Uh, he, he's not always front and center. But, you know, I think you have to square that with the fact that he you know, has achieved uh, a really mar- remarkable uh, legislative success in just his first few months in office. You know, so I think it's really interesting that he, on the, on the one hand, is pursuing a really ambitious agenda, uh, but on the other hand, really isn't dominating the coverage uh, and the attention in the way that his predecessors have. And that's an interesting observation, and I agree with you, by the way. He seems to let his team uh, do what they're supposed to be doing, as opposed to everything going over his desk. Yeah, yeah I think in many ways, uh, you know, it sort of harkens back to a different model of the presidency, not not really as the center of everything, but but as more of a first among equals uh, who works with his party and, and works with legislative leaders in Congress. You know, the, the president is supposed to be someone who presides, not, not necessarily someone who dominates. Uh, and I think embracing that role in a lot of ways is key to Biden's uh, strengths in his persona, and maybe also his weaknesses. The fact that, uh, you know, as an older guy, he may, might not have the um, the energy to simply be out there 24-7. But I think in many ways that's, that's healthy in some regards, just in the sense that um, it's a bit of a step away from the model of the imperial presidency that I think we've seen people in both parties and body, in, in which the president is the center of absolutely everything. I, mean, I, I don't think that's very good for democracy in the long run. I don't think it's really a healthy relationship for Americans to have to their president. Uh, you know, I hope in that regard, um, he's setting a good precedent uh, that, that maybe his successors will be interested in maintaining in lots of ways. I, 
it's been a while, I guess, since Americans have seen a politician that was actually cognizant of their strengths and weaknesses. I mean, his, their, his own strengths and weaknesses. I, I, you know, Trump thought he was the be-all and end-all and the definitive word on whatever they wanted to talk about. Uh, Biden seems to understand that. I mean, if he's talking about issues of law, for instance, uh, his attorney general is going to talk about that. If it's if it's the environment, it's going to be somebody else, and, and on and on it goes. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, he can't be expert on everything, and uh, nobody nobody should try to be. Trump certainly tried to be, and we had you know lots of examples of how that didn't work well for him but it seems to be uh working for biden are the american people buying into it you mentioned about the approval ratings they're they're uh, relatively high i mean they i saw a graphic on msnbc yesterday about this and i, I guess obama had the highest rating of, of all of the last seven or eight presidents uh <laughs> after the first hundred days or so but and, and george w bush was in there and, and others uh biden's only a point behind them though yeah, I think Biden is doing you know pretty well in that uh, historical perspective. I would say one thing to keep in mind is historically um, incoming presidents, and I think Trump was an exception to this for some reasons, but uh, incoming presidents do tend to have a bit of a honeymoon period or a bounce period when they first come into office, so I think Biden is taking advantage of that. Uh, and I think one thing that is sort of a tried-and-true strategy uh, is to take advantage of that uh, and, and put as much uh, of your ambitious um, policy-setting, uh, policy-agenda-setting legislation as front and center in those early honeymoon days as possible. And I think that's what Biden's done with his uh, work on the Rescue Act. And I think this is going to be a uh, big impact as well on um, the democracy reform agenda that's, that the Democrats are bringing to Congress right now, H.R. 1, uh, which is going to do a lot to expand voting rights if it's able to overcome uh, the filibuster Republican opposition in the Senate. You know, so I think what Biden is doing in that regard is in a lot of ways a tried and true strategy that I think he recognizes and, and probably everyone recognizes that uh, you know, things eventually polarize over time. This approval rating probably won't last. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is that um, the uh, Rescue Act, uh, the, the major stimulus that was just uh, passed and signed, um, it has a significantly higher approval rating than the president. Um, mm-hmm. It's in many regards popular uh, for voters of both parties. And I think for some obvious reasons, just including the fact that it puts money directly into people's bank accounts. So I think it's worth keeping in mind that the president is trying to leverage that bounce that he got on taking office into uh, passing more popular legislation. Well, even the stuff that he proposed, I guess, uh, you know, as pre-election and, and post-election, when he did the state or his inaugural address, he said it was going to be the pandemic. That's job one. Uh, and, and things related to that. And that includes the relief package, certainly, by the way, which they finally did get passed uh, after many, many months of discussion and debate on that. Uh, but they're seeing results. I guess that's that's one of the best things that can happen to a politician to say, this is what I'm going to do and have the population actually say, you know what, we're making progress. We're, we're getting the vaccine out there. We're doing a lot faster than we thought we were going to do. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of rolled their eyes when the president said he was going to get uh, how 100 million vaccinations within the first 100 days. Uh, they've, they've done a remarkable job, not just obtaining the vaccines, but, but getting them into people's arms. Yeah, I, I do agree with you that it's been a remarkable job, and I think it's been, in some regards, it's been a turnaround from the past administration. But, you know, on the other hand, to, to give credit where it's due, you know, some of these initiatives were put in place by the Trump administration, and I think that it's often hard to draw an artificial dividing line on January 20th of the new administration yeah. and say that everything after that is, is due to Joe Biden. But I, I do think that, and this was something that was, I think, obvious in his uh, speech last night, was that he is really pulling out all the stops of what he can do as president to use the federal authority and to use the office of the president to do whatever he can to speed up that vaccine distribution, speed up uh, waiting lists, and speed up um, implementation of a vaccine strategy. 
Uh, and, you know, I think, like I said, I think that um, it, it's to their credit that the Trump administration put funding into vaccine development. But I think one place in which they were a little bit uh, behind was in the question of once the vaccines are developed and out there, how do we actually do the nitty gritty of making sure they're distributed? Uh, and I think you can see Biden, um, as he said, putting the country on a war footing, as it were, uh, to, to use every resource possible to ensure those vaccines are distributed. So I, I do think that uh, you know he's setting an ambitious goal. But I also know that when politicians set very uh, visible, very uh, headline garnering goals, you know, they usually tend to set goals that they are confident of being able to achieve because it would certainly be a disaster for them if he didn't achieve that. And, of course, you know, he and his team know that, which gives me a lot of confidence that they wouldn't have made that promise if they weren't confident of it being carried out. And, I mean, the two big elements of this, of course, the relief package and the vaccination program, as, as you mentioned, are things that every American can relate to because it has an impact on each and every one of them. I mean, the, the, the Muslim ban that Trump enacted not too long after he was inaugurated, and, of course, the wall issue, uh, very controversial issues, certainly, certainly very polarizing issues. Uh, but there were Americans who could say, doesn't impact me, I don't care. But this impacts everybody. Yeah, yeah and I think you can really see the difference between the two parties in that regard. But I think a lot of what... Trump prioritized as soon as he came into office were, were very culture war policies, policies that um, certainly had an important impact on the people who were directly affected by them, but for the vast majority of Americans were important as points for or against in the culture war, but didn't really have much of a substantive agenda for what he wanted to do with the power of government uh, other than pass a massive tax cut and try to repeal Obamacare. Uh, you know, Biden and Democrats, on the other hand, I think have a much more substantive idea of what they want to use the power of the government to do. And the other thing I'd point out is I think the most encouraging thing for me is watching the people on this team um, reflect what they've learned from the Obama experience uh, mm-hmm. in 2009 and 2010, the years immediately afterwards, because a lot of them were on that team. And I think they saw a couple of things. One, I think they saw that uh, the Obama administration was, in a sense, negotiating against itself to preemptively lower the amount of economic stimulus, which meant that joblessness, uh, recession, and so on went on a lot longer than they probably would have otherwise. And secondly, in a lot of ways, um, Obama was more reticent in selling the stimulus and, and trumpeting exactly uh, how it had impacted people's lives, uh, why it mattered, why it was necessary, and, and so on. And I think Biden, in some regards, has learned from that. I think he, you know, after the speech, which in many ways was meant not just to mark the anniversary of the pandemic and talk about vaccinations, but also to publicize the stimulus, uh, you know, he's immediately going to set off on a tour to talk about the benefits and the way that it impacts uh, communities across the country. And I really think that Democrats have, have learned the lesson that they're not going to get bipartisan cooperation on these things, that Republicans are going to oppose them every step of the way because that's what they do. But the goal ought to be, simply from their own political self-interest perspective, the goal ought to be to boost the economy as much as possible and then take credit for it. Uh, you know, they're, they're obviously going to run into a lot of his, historically um, uh, meaningful wins, uh, headwinds, uh, when the midterm comes along. Incumbent parties, presidents' parties don't do well in midterms historically. But I think the bet that they are making is that if the economy shows market improvement, uh, if the pandemic uh, shows market improvement, if restrictions are listed by that time, uh, he's going to get the maximum amount of credit. So I, I can't guarantee that it's going to work for them, but I do think that they paid attention to that experience in uh, 2019-2010, and they're really um, adjusting their behavior and adjusting their strategy on the basis of what happened in those years. 
Yeah, because the number one criticism of of the first term of the Obama administration was that he had that advantage in his first two years. You know, he had the, the Senate, he had the House, and, of course, he, he is the president, and didn't accomplish a lot of the stuff that he said he was going to do. Biden, you're right, I think he's got his, his foot on the gas pedal right now and saying, I'm not going to make the same mistake again, uh, because you never know what's going to happen in midterms, do you? No, and I also don't think he's going to really spend a lot of time negotiating with the other party. You know, I think that you know, his message of unity is an important part of his persona. But on the other hand, I think it's pretty well understood that so much of this negotiation that Republicans engaged in in the Obama years, um, you know, from the beginning to the end, was just conducted in bad faith, was just conducted for the end uh, of stalling and delaying and watering down, but not really because they had a collaborative vision of what they wanted the government to do or because they really believed in bipartisan legislation. You know, so I really think that the ethos of this new administration is, you know, fool me once, uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And I, I think that in that regard, they're not going to be caught negotiating with themselves, and they're not going to participate in negotiations with people who are doing it in bad faith. You know, I think there are some people on the Republican side, maybe people like Mitt Romney, who's proposed a really ambitious um, uh, child tax credit, um, which in many ways is modeled on the one we have in Canada. Um is someone that might be a partner to work with on some more ambitious parts of legislation. But I think on the whole, uh, I think there's been a lot of, it's been a learning experience. I think Obama came in with the goal and the ambition of being someone who could reconcile the parties, who could uh, preside over good faith, substantive negotiations about what the government really was supposed to accomplish and and was just absolutely steamrolled. Um, And again, I, I don't know if that means that Biden's a more talented politician, but I do think it means that he and people on his team we're paying attention to the last attempt, and they're certainly not going to repeat it. Maybe they'll make their own mistakes, but you know, the very least I can say for them is they're going to try to make different mistakes. Well, he's he's been around a long time, both in the Senate and of course as VP. So he's and he's pretty savvy when it comes to, to how Washington works, and I guess that's a big advantage. Uh, so with the the rollout of the vaccine going as well as it has, it's not surprising, I guess, that uh, there's some pressure from some of the northern states, some of the border states, uh, to the, for the Biden administration to at least begin discussions about reopening the Canada-U.S. border, at least easing the restrictions. Anyway, uh, what are the chances of that happening? Well, I think it depends on the negotiations between both countries. You know, like you said, I think there's been some pressure coming from some members of Congress who represent those border states. Um, you know, but I think there's going to be pressure on lifting restrictions across the board. You know, one thing that Biden emphasized last night was this idea that we really shouldn't take our foot off the gas pedal until we can be confident uh, that the vaccination campaign has reached its goals. So I think there's going to be some pressure, but it seems like the message coming from the White House is that they're going to do their best to resist that pressure until at least, you know, we can say in May, June, and July, those vaccines are actually uh, fully distributed to the extent possible that everyone who wants one has been able to get one. Now, I imagine it'll be similar on this side of the border. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think for most of the past year of the pandemic, uh, in some sense, the dynamic has been reversed in that Canada has wanted to keep its side of the border closed and it's had more pressure on that simply because uh, the, the rates of infection on the south side of the border were so much higher. Um, yeah, that might start to change in the sense that the American vaccination campaign has gone comparatively better than the Canadian one. But I do think there's going to be some pressure on both sides of the border to uh, to keep it closed for a few more months, at least. You know, I, I would say I'm not an epidemiologist or anything, but I would say as a matter of political communication, which is something that I do work on, um, I think a goal might be to key these things to certain kinds of benchmarks, um, whether it's uh, new infection rates, uh, hospitalization rates, death rates, or, or something that people can look at objectively. And rather than promising a date, because so much is uncertain, I think it might be better to say that if we could show sustained progress on both sides of the border on one of those metrics, and I, of course, I'd leave that up to the experts what exactly the metric is. But if we can show that kind of sustained progress, that's when we talk about opening.
but I, I know it has been hard. You know, it's, it's been hard for me personally. I have a lot of family in the States mm-hmm. that I haven't been able to see, and I, I just I know how many other people uh, in my neighborhood are in exactly the same boat and, you know, all over the country are in the same boat. But I think, you know, I, I think there's going to be some resistance on both sides to opening up prematurely. Well, especially in light of the fact that I understand how well things are going in the States, but we're getting a much different picture even here in Ontario, aren't we, Professor? I mean, you know, our medical officer of health is saying that, you know, there's a possibility of very, or maybe even a probability of a third wave uh, because of the, the numbers that are rising. And by the way, one of the worst spots apparently is right across the border in Windsor, Essex. Uh, you know, so maybe they want to reconsider this. I can understand why the, Bi- the Biden administration is, is going to take the slow, cautious approach on this. Right. You know, I, I think that's I think that's the right approach to take as hard as it is and as much as people have hunkered down over the last year for the most part. Uh, but, you know, I do think that's the wise approach. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any kind of predictions about what it's going to look like, but I do think this just points to the urgency uh, of the federal and provincial governments doing whatever they can to increase the rate of vaccination on this side of the border. Because you know that, of course, there's a lot of pressure on this side of the border, too. And then down uh, as in the Niagara region, of course, I mean, they've been decimated. The tourism industry is almost non-existent now. And uh, they count on, on that cross-border uh, traffic to go back and forth and all uh, those points. And, and I, I know it's the same in Windsor as well because of what's happening there, too. But uh, you're right. I, what I see both administrations doing, the Trudeau government here and, of course, the Biden administration, is they seem to be listening to the science and, and instead of listening to some of the political pressure. Right. And I, I think that's going to be it's always going to be hard to sustain, you know, given that people have businesses at stake, given that people haven't seen their uh, grandkids and grandparents and so on. So I, I absolutely understand where that pressure is coming from. But I also think that, that one thing that they can draw on that they might not have been able to draw on over the last year was this promise that if we could just hold up for a few more months, we're going to get to the end of this. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's why, at least from a communication standpoint, Biden was smart to say, hopefully we can see an end to this. And, you know, there, there were a lot of I think, false promises, maybe not deliberately false, but just sort of unduly optimistic promises, uh, you know, that President Trump made throughout the whole length of the pandemic. You know, some of them might have been deceptive on purpose. Some of them might have just been trying to wish this thing away. But I think now that the vaccine campaign is so well underway, at least on the U.S. side of the border, I do think, you know, we we can start talking about some specific dates and start talking about some hopes that are are a little more founded. And hopefully the the, the Trudeau government is going to be able to do something similar on this side of the border, even if it's going to take a few months longer. Professor Rod Goodman from uh, Ryerson University. Professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on again. Bye-bye. You betcha. We'll talk to you again soon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.